Hi, everyone. This is America Adapts, the climate change podcast. Hey, Adapters, welcome back to the podcast. I hope you're all doing well during this pandemic, and please wear a mask when you are around people outside your normal bubble. All right, in this very special episode of America Daps, I'm hosting former U.S. Senator Russ Feingold. What a treat. Senator Feingold and I discuss his recent work for the Campaign for Nature and how they are creating a coalition of conservationists to focus on biodiversity protection, an issue dear to my heart. We also discuss climate change, and we dabble a little bit into some current politics. I mean, it's Senator Feingold. I had to, right? I hope you enjoy the conversation, and it was just awesome getting this opportunity to talk with the former senator. Okay, upcoming episodes. My second episode in a three-part series with the trustees, a conservation group in Massachusetts, will be coming out. The second episode, we visit Crane Beach, just north of Boston, and how they are adapting to climate change there. Also, Dr. Renee Lertzman is coming on, and we're going to discuss climate grief and eco-anxiety. Some great stuff coming your way. All right, let's jump into this conversation with Senator Russ Feingold. Hey, welcome back, Adapters. On today's exciting episode, I'm hosting former U.S. Senator Russ Feingold. Senator Feingold is joining us today as a global ambassador for the Campaign for Nature. Welcome to the podcast, Senator. Good to be on the podcast. Thank you very much for inviting me. Well, this is a real treat. I've been a fan of yours for many years, and here I am talking to Senator Feingold. So <laughs> just uh, I'm looking forward to this conversation very much. But first off, I just want to check in. I'm checking in with all my guests of late. What's happening with you with COVID-19? How is it affecting your ability to do what you're doing? Well, it's been very challenging for everybody. I've been very fortunate health-wise, and my family has. But, you know, I was starting a new job on March 9th or 10th in hmm. D.C. I'm, I'm the new head of the American Constitution Society. And I had gone out to start on a Monday and met all the staff. We had an all-staff meeting like people used to have. And the next morning, we had to tell people to go home. Wow. And my daughters who live in the D.C. area said, Dad, you and your wife, uh, Christine, you should go back to Wisconsin. So we got in the car on a Sunday, and 13 hours later, we were here in Wisconsin, in Middleton, Wisconsin, across from a very nice nature conservancy. And I've been running the organization from here ever since about March 20th. So obviously it's not an ideal situation, but we are doing the best we can to protect the American Constitution. And I'm also continuing to do work for the Campaign for Nature, but everything has to be done obviously remotely. Well, I know we're going to talk about biodiversity as part of this interview, but I, I am curious. So what is the purpose of the, the organization? You say protect the Constitution, but what really kind of what's the overall mission? Well, the mission is to try to make sure that our courts are not completely controlled by those who are financed by huge unlimited contributions who require judges and others to have a very narrow, very conservative views on things like the right to choose and gun control and other issues. You may have heard of the Federalist Society, sure. which has been a very powerful force on the right. The American Constitution Society is in part a response to that. But it's more than that. It is an attempt to bring back the legal system to the people in their communities instead of the very wealthy interests that have packed our courts. And so our mission is to try to reverse that trend and to move forward with a more positive legal system into the future that every American can feel they can enjoy and, and be when they have to be in a legal situation to feel like they're supported by the law rather than opposed by the law. 
Well, I imagine just again, just going off on this, what's happening in you know some of the, the major cities out there is going to keep an organization like yours busy. It sure has. I mean, it had plenty to do anyway. But once this uh, horrific racial injustice issue came back to the fore, we've been working extremely hard on the issues of racial inequities in this country, including during the COVID-19 in particular, but also things like the way the federal death penalty is administered and the death penalty, which is very racially biased. So we are looking at aspects of the legal system in particular that are very unfair uh, to people of color. And of course, the great challenge to voting for all people, but especially people of color. And we've had big problems here in Wisconsin on that one already this year. So there's no shortage of incredibly important issues that we as lawyers and a lawyer organization uh, need to address as this country tries to get out of the hole it's in. You know, I think I want to circle back around to that, but I want to make sure that we get to, you know, the issue at hand. And you're working on the, these environmental issues. And could you give us a, an explanation of what 30 by 30 is all about? Yeah, I was contacted a little over a year ago because uh, some people knew that I'd worked a lot on the Africa on African issues in the Senate and as a special envoy for President Obama to the Congo and Central Congo involving peace negotiations. But people knew that we had also done some work in terms of environmental issues in Africa. And I was asked to join uh, as a uh, consultant and an ambassador, an effort sponsored by Hans-Jörg Wies called the Campaign for Nature. And what the Campaign for Nature is, is an attempt to implement uh, the Convention on Biodiversity. And as you undoubtedly know, the Convention on Biodiversity was hatched at about the same time in Rio in 1992 as the Climate Treaty and also the Desertification Treaty. And it's been ratified uh, by every country in the world except for basically the United States, which is uh, unbelievably ridiculous. But anyway, the idea behind it is that there is a huge international global threat to biodiversity, to our life on the planet. There's up to a million species that are threatened with extinction, according to the UN gathered scientists. And so what 30 by 30 is, is a proposal that next year in China, it was going to be this year, but next year in China, that there will be a convention very much like the Paris Climate Accord under the auspices of the UN, where a commitment will be made to preserve 30% of the planet in its natural state, ocean and land by 2030. So it's a 10-year goal, and we are trying to get as many countries in the world as possible to sign on to this goal. And that's one of my roles is to try to highlight this in Africa, but also globally. And this is what Mr. Weiss's uh, contribution to the cause is all about. It's a limited-time organization leading up to the conference, which has now been rescheduled to next May, probably in Kunming, China, where it was originally going to be in October but couldn't be because of covid but that's what 30 by 30 means. There are a lot of nuances to it, but that's the short way of saying it. So is it an actual international treaty or just is it a voluntary agreement? What what's, form is it going to take? Well, yeah, I mean, the, the agreement would be an agreement among states, countries that are part of an international enforceable treaty, the Convention on Biodiversity. So this convention, like the Climate Convention, as you know, you know that meets every couple of years. This meets every two years, and it uh, is going to have its critical meeting, Convention of the Parties 15, uh, next year. And that is where every 10 years at these UN convenings, and this is a UN convening of an enforceable treaty, a goal is set 
So 10 years ago in 2010, other goals, more modest goals for preserving biodiversity were agreed to in Japan at the 10th, 10th year there. They were more like in the range of 17 to 15 percent of preservation of the planet. And that hasn't even quite been achieved, although it's getting closer. Now the scientists are saying we've got to do better than that. Things are going downhill too fast. So we need to do 30 percent of the planet by 2030. And they're also already looking ahead and saying we may need to do 50 by 50, 50 percent of the planet by 2050. So this is a proposal that would become an enforceable part of an international convention or treaty on biodiversity. I think the E.O. Wilson, he, he's in, within that group, I think, the 50 percent, if I have that right. Yeah, he's one of the real leaders on this. He's the one that's helped convene and express that convene the scientists and express this. These these are the giants, Tom Lovejoy and others uh, of this on this subject. Okay, and I want to talk about uh, Dr. Lovejoy in a second here, but I, I guess that's why I asked what it, what form it's taking, because I think of the U.S. doesn't always play nice on these international agreements. And sometimes if the Senate has to ratify it and I, you know, the Paris Agreement, we didn't have to do that. And I think it's because it was voluntary. Maybe you could explain that. But when we have an international agreement that actually has to be ratified by the Senate, then that's when we usually can't get involved. How will this be a little bit different? Well, this is where there's an interesting difference. It turns out that the climate treaty convention on the climate issue came from Rio as well in 1992. But that got ratified under George Bush I a little bit earlier on. By the time the Convention of Biodiversity got to the Senate, Jesse Helms, and I was there watching this because I was on the Foreign Relations Committee, Jesse Helms of North Carolina had become chairman of the uh, Foreign Relations Committee, and he was blocking every treaty he could get his hands on. He wouldn't approve the law of the sea, he wouldn't approve the treaty on the law of the rights of, of, the ch of children, and he wouldn't let this one go through. So we have this insane situation where basically 190 countries in the world are parties to the Convention of Biodiversity, but we're not. Now, if there's a change in administration and in the Senate, there's a chance that we could become a party to it. Uh, it would still require two-thirds of the Senate, but I think there would be a chance. And I'm hoping, uh, if there is a new administration, that they will try to revive this as an enforceable treaty for the United States, as well as create a White House office on biodiversity, like there's a white, been a White House office in the past on, a, on climate change. Now, having said that, uh, there is legislation domestically, led by Senator Tom Udall of New Mexico, to create the 30 by 30 standard for the United States as well. But we are not literally parties to the international agreement, but as you can see from talking to me and leaders of the Campaign for Nature, many of us are Americans who are participating on our own with this international effort. And that's what we, we can do that, uh, even though the administration probably is not sympathetic to it at this point. Possibly there will be an administration in a few months who would find this very appealing because the overwhelming uh, leading countries in the world, countries like France and Britain and actually Costa Rica is one of the leading countries on this, these are some of the countries that have really led this, and it's simply an embarrassment that the United States is not a party to it. Senator Helms, I, I remember following that very closely. I wonder if he'd be considered a, a moderate these days. You, you would never know. Eh, <laughs> probably not, although, you know, you could occasionally talk to him about things. But 
Not exactly moderate. <laughs> right. Well, in sign of the times. But so your partner in this, at least it's my understanding, is Dr. Thomas Lovejoy. And I used to work for the Society for Conservation Biology. So certainly know his work in, in a previous life. So how are you partnering up with him? Well, he's the expert. He's one of the people that knows this subject inside and out. And so I've had the chance to talk to him and certainly read some of his good work. He's one of the stars of this effort. And, of course, National Geographic and other groups are very involved in this as well. And so, you know, these are the key people, scientists like that, who can really explain the crisis we're in. In fact, people like Dr. Lovejoy were very involved and aware of what's called the IPBES, which was the report issued on May 6th a year ago that essentially said, we have a huge problem here. They, it was hundreds of scientists got together and they said that this thing was as great a threat, this threat to biodiversity as climate change. Uh, as you say, Sir Robert Watson is one of the people that's talked about this, as well as Dr. Lovejoy and others. And, you know, what they did was essentially say, if we don't start reversing this now, it could become irreversible. And so what they've explained, and they've done a good job of explaining it to the general public, but we need to do even more to have people that aren't scientists and environmentalists talk about this. But they're talking about how since human civilization began, you know, wild land animals are down 85 percent. Marine mammals are down 80 percent. Plants, 50 percent. Fish, 14 percent. And more recently, in the last few decades, apparently there's been a collapse of the insect population in Europe and, and also 37 percent of amphibians are gone. And then in North America, since 1970, since I was in high school, since the first Earth Day, there has been a tremendous loss of birds, supposedly as many as 30 percent of all birds and some of the very common birds have, have, have gone away. So the planet is in a great deal of danger. Of course, in the, in the oceans, you have overfishing. And uh, one of the things that people like uh, Mr. Lovejoy help explain is that the causes of biodiversity are intimately related to climate, but it's not identical. In fact, the number one threat to biodiversity is land use, in effect. You know, sort of you know, cutting down trees or agricultural land. So it's not climate directly. It's land usage, impinging on natural areas. And then... The second is the direct exploitation of natural things, such as trees or overfishing. But the third greatest cause, and of course a growing one, is climate change. So you have a situation where you want to preserve the coral reefs and the biodiversity in the magnificent coral reefs. Climate change in places like the Great Barrier Reef causes a little bit of an increase in the water temperature. That kills the various species that live and are symbiotic with the coral. And that's why you have the coral bleaching, why it becomes white and basically ultimately dies. So that's climate related. And then you have two other causes, invasive species, as we've experienced in, in the Great Lakes in the United States. And, of course, the one that got us all going on this with the first Earth Day of my predecessor, Gaylord Nelson, pollution. You know, we used to talk about the environment. We always talked about pollution. Well, now we're talking about all these things, and many of them are, are not just domestic, but are international and have to be solved internationally. So these scientists are the ones that have raised the alarm, and it's our job to take it into the uh, diplomatic and political circles to uh, get something done, to set real goals for the political and governmental world, 
and the finance world to get acting on this. But the scientists have done a tremendous job of documenting this. But they also say it's not necessarily irreversible. You can uh, retrieve forests. You can retrieve natural park areas. You can retrieve overfish waters if you act on it. I wonder, as you go through this in this podcast, it has climate change in the title. Are you finding that climate change is really going to sucking up all the oxygen around a lot of these environmental issues? Do you feel it might be at a detriment when you want to really just kind of focus on biodiversity? Are you encountering anything like that? You know, we don't look at it that way, and that's just a critical question. And the way I look at it, and I've had a lot of conversations, especially with African leaders on this, is the two issues are so closely interrelated. But the sort of psychological problem is we're already telling people, look, this climate thing is so dangerous, uh, you know, it could kill everybody. And then if you walk up and say, oh, and by the way, if we solve that, then we've got the biodiversity problem that can kill you, too. That's a lot to take in. And so the smart thing to do, and I think the right thing to do, is to realize that they're really interrelated. Much of the activity that would be involved in preserving biodiversity is beneficial to the climate as well. So one of the leaders on this in Uganda said to me, it's got to be one issue, one cause, dealing with the climate cause and the biodiversity clause. And one of the great examples in Africa, of course, is preserving the great Congolese forests. The Congolese forests are known as the second lung on the planet, second only to the Amazon. And, you know, that has to do very significantly with climate change, because if you uh, cut down the trees in the forest there, you are losing is one of the great sinks for CO2, which is a critical thing in the climate field. The same thing goes if uh, some of the massive peatlands in places like Congo and Angola are disrupted. Those are also sinks, if you will, for a carbon dioxide. And so uh, instead of them being competing issues, I think people are realizing, especially now that we're in this COVID situation, that a coalition between these two issues makes total sense. And as far as I know, just about every scientist and scholar that works on this issue see the two issues as essentially compatible and both essential. Well, I spent most of my career doing wildlife conservation and I always felt as adaptation, climate adaptation came, you know, it's an emerging issue. It was actually a, a huge opportunity to kind of supercharge conservation for wildlife. And I don't think everyone sees it that way. And now I'm drawing a blank and I'm wondering if you could speak to it is you, you look at the Green New Deal and it's talking about, you know, reducing our carbon emissions, but then it talks a lot about income inequality and climate justice and a lot of other issues. I'm drawing a blank. Did it address biodiversity at all? Well, I think it does by just talking about those issues. I don't recall it being the, the main focus, and that's one of our jobs is to get people to talk about that, to also talk about the, the need to achieve 30 percent preservation by 2030. But it's almost impossible to have a conversation about climate change and the effect of the climate without also talking about the effects on the natural world. And so um, I think that will become central to the conversation about that kind of green legislation. And I also think that COVID-19 has caused people to think about another element of this that I think will be very prominent. And that is the fact that some of these terrible diseases have come from the zoonotic effect of uh, diseases jumping from wild animals to humans. Sometimes that happens through domestic animals and then to humans, or it can happen through wild animals, you know, the Ebola virus. Most people believe 
of course, came from monkeys originally in Congo. And they probably picked it up, they think, from bats. So maybe a bat started to eat a piece of fruit and didn't finish it. And then a monkey came up and ate it. And then that monkey gets Ebola. And then that monkey gets caught, taken to a wet market, sold for food. This is where things jump. And there is a belief that this COVID-19, although I can't say it's absolutely valid, that it was through the pendulums, which are, you know, a delicacy in some parts of the world, not just China, but Africa and other places. There's scales, the meat of the pendulum. There is a belief that this is one of the things that started the thing in, in Wuhan. So a lot is being written now about the inner relationship between disrupting nature and the spread of these horrific diseases. So, you know, we're going to have to have public policy both nationally, frank, frankly, locally and internationally, that looks at all these issues together as what we're talking about. This is about an ecosystem. These aren't separate things. All of these things work hand in hand, uh, and you have to understand the entirety of it. That's why these scientists and environmentalists are so critical. But you can't sort of separate one from the other completely, nor would you want to, in order to be effective and to truly make the planet safe. And, you know, the other point you make is, you know, how are we ever going to get to any kind of equity or fairness in this world? You know, we can sort of solve the climate problem, let's say. But where does that leave people in countries that have been exploited, colonial exploitation in Africa? Because we are hoping that a lot of Africa will be preserved. But the leaders of the countries who are very sympathetic to our cause here and have been some of the best people on what we call our global steering committee, they are saying, well, wait a minute, we have to feed our people. So in a country like Uganda, which is densely populated, you know, there's there's a cost to preserving natural areas. And there has to be a plan for helping these countries finance that sort of thing and also be able to continue to feed their people. So there will be equity issues and frankly, racial equity issues and others that are going to be a big part of this discussion. It can't be simply an issue of, of controlling CO2. There are many other critical issues involved here. You are having to speak a wide spectrum of people explaining the value of biodiversity. And I'm curious, because in my own background in it, you have people that just appreciate the intrinsic value of biodiversity. Someone like Dr. Lovejoy just takes great joy in that beyond just the science of it. And then the other end, you hear people arguing to protect biodiversity because it might, you know, in the Amazon, there might be drugs that we find in the rainforest that will be beneficial to people. And that's, to me, that's sort of more of a utilitarian. How do you kind of find that sweet spot? Because most people aren't going to really care about the intrinsic value of biodiversity. What What's really, I guess, been a, a com communication strategy that's been useful to you? Yeah, this is an interesting point. It's an important one because, you know, for people like me and many of the people that are drawn to this area, you know, the magnificence of the restoration of species is a very moving and exciting thing. Right across the street from me here in Middleton, Wisconsin, you see the resurrection of the cranes, particularly the sandhill cranes that were essentially not around when I was growing up here. And we know that people care greatly about the preservation of elephants and rhinos and others around the world. But this is a much larger subject than that. That's an important, if you will, sort of sexy part of this that people can connect with. But actually, it, there's much more to it. The reality is if we continue to use up natural areas, we're simply not going to be in a situation of, of viability in terms of feeding people in this world. And if the climate change continues, we're going to lose so much uh, good arable land and water and, and water that can be used for, for human cons fish and other things necessary to human consumption, 
then what you're going to have is a crisis of viability for the human species. And added to this, and this is what uh, Dr. Watson and others have done such a great deal of work on, there's tremendous economic consequences here. If this type of thing is not properly thought about, for example, the abuse in Indonesia, the palm oil plantations, ultimately you reach a point where you have essentially used up the resource and it's gone. And you just don't have a natural environment. You don't have pollinators anymore. The bees and others that are need natural areas to replenish and then pollinate. What happens is you no longer have a viable, uh, not only environment, but you're not going to have a viable economy either. So we have to take it from what may draw people in, the affection that we all have for animals and interesting species, but get to the point where we realize that literally our health, the ability to stop pandemics and diseases, and our economic future depend on having a viable plan, both with regard to climate change and with regard to the what's called the potential sixth extinction, the biodiversity threat uh, that many are calling possibly the first human-created Anthropocene extinction that could become irreversible at some point. Okay, so next steps. You're having these conversations, and let's say hypothetically, Joe Biden wins the presidency, and there's going to be a friendlier administration to issues like this. You've actually served in the Senate with uh, Senator Biden, and what's what's your own impression? Are these issues that he's dealt with in the past? Does he really kind of understand these issues? Well, I'm not speaking politically today because of my role at the American Constitution <laughs> Society. But, you know, I, of course, I think Joe Biden would have no trouble understanding this and care about it. But what we're doing here is, regardless of what happens with the American political system this year, is we're acting internationally. And uh, I do feel that if uh, we're able to get an accord, hopefully next May, uh, this commitment of 30 by 30, 30 percent of the planet by 2030, I'm hoping that that mechanism will be up and running that the financing for it is going to be very important, getting international institutions and wealthy interests and wealthy countries to contribute to this. And it would be great, obviously, if the United States uh, could get on board with this as soon as possible. But it will be, I hope and believe, it will be moving in the right direction. Um, as you said, it's like the climate accord that they came up with in 2015. It is not, this, this agreement is not a treaty. It's based on a treaty. But this commitment is not a, a treaty itself, 30 by 30. So the United States could join with what I think is going to be just about every other country in the world, if not every other country in the world, uh, with the commitment to 3030. And obviously, this country could really help finance that and is, and is going to need to be one of the sources of, of funding for this. So this is something we're going to be acting on regardless. But it is not a great thing when the United States is not fully committed to it. I actually had Christiana Figueres. She was the architect of the Paris Agreement. She came on the podcast and we chatted a bit about that. And what I asked her, you know, let's say we had a new president. How hard would it be to get back into the Paris Agreement? And she's pretty much like the next day you could sign back on. So sure. it's just different. And by the way, she is a member of a group that I was asked to create, a global steering committee to show you the link between the climate issue and uh, this issue. So I was asked by the Campaign for Nature to put together a group of former leaders, presidents or uh, leaders on the environment, foreign ministers and others. And she has joined this group as a very prestigious person on the climate issue. She joins people like Mary Robinson, the first woman president of Ireland with our group. 
Zippy Livni of Israel, who was the former minister of Israel, uh, President Obasanjo of Nigeria, Ellen Johnson Sirleaf, the, the first woman president ever in an African country in Liberia. We have leaders from Malaysia and Indonesia, Susan Malcora, foreign former, former minister of uh, Argentina, and like Christiana Figueres, uh, leaders from Costa Rica. And so we have an, an international group that includes climate leaders that is, our mission is to take this issue and highlight it as much as we can, like I'm trying to do here today, sort of outside of the science and environmental world, as important as it is. We want the average person to, to get it and to understand the threat. You know, it's kind of like what Greta Thunberg did for the climate issue. She brought it to a very human level. A teenager who has now become an international figure of great importance. We would like people to see this issue in the same light. In fact, there is a movement that's especially in, in, in Britain called the Extinction Rebellion, which is partly about climate, but is also about the threat to the, to the planet in terms of potential extinction problems. That's what we hope to do, because we won't succeed unless people begin to realize that this is part of the global threat. Senator, I just have a few more questions for you. But first off, for my listeners, what can they do themselves? I, I think there's a petition. What would you recommend that they do? I'll tell you, the model that, that the climate people were adopting prior to the COVID, where people would gather at the town halls in their town every Friday about the climate issue, that was a really exciting thing. That, you know, of course, began in New York a little bit less than a year ago. And I think it was really gathering momentum. Now, we have other incredibly crucial issues, such as the horrible things that have happened in the area of racial injustice. And so one has to be sensitive to the fact that those issues need to continue to get tremendous attention. But I would say young people especially, high school, college, young adults outside of their schooling, demanding that this type of 30 by 30 be done is one of the best ways to make this happen. You know, I'm old enough to remember the first Earth Day. And in fact, my, one of my predecessors, Gaylord Nelson, the senator from Wisconsin, was the founder of Earth Day. And I held his seat in the Senate. The response around the world that day on the first Earth Day in 1970 was incredible. And it was especially younger people. So they are the ones who deserve this action because it's their world that's going to be more messed up than our world. And I would urge young people to take the action of, you know, protests or gatherings or other regular efforts to make people aware of this problem. Excellent. And, you know, just before we finish up, I, I, I said I wanted to circle back around, and I think the work that you're doing with the Constitution Society is so critical right now. Is there any additional messaging if people have questions or you know, what's going on in the cities? I mean, I, I think a lot of people just really don't know what they can potentially do or even learn more. Is there is the Constitution Society is a resource in that respect? Absolutely. If you go to our website, acslaw.org, uh, you will see the range of things that the organization is trying to accomplish. I mean, the fundamental purpose is to make sure the legal system is fair for all Americans, but it gets illustrated on things like very strong programming on protecting voting rights, particularly in this COVID era. Things like challenging the death penalty that is particularly racially biased. Things like uh, trying to make sure that uh, people have access to the courts during a time like this COVID crisis. And so you will see on the website 
a wide range of attention in legal scholarship as well as activism relating to these issues. But essentially, it's the largest and only grassroots progressive, if you will, legal organization in the country where we actually have a grassroots organization. There are 200 chapters in, in law schools around the country. There are over 50 lawyer chapters. And so if you uh, simply go to our website, you can plug in not only to the program, which is interesting. We have interesting programs essentially every week, every week especially now on Zoom. But also uh, you can get connected to taking action in your local community. If you want to help with poll watching, if you want to help with uh, avoiding voter intimidation, if you want to help with, uh, as a lawyer, with pro bono help for those that have been abused by the police, this is a place where you can get connected. Well, it's my understanding your organization is like, you know, the Federalist Society has really been doing their work over the decades. And I, this is just down a tangent, but have you guys taken a position on expanding the Supreme Court or have you got, gotten there yet? The organization is not able to take specific positions. Okay. On okay. However, <laughs> we do highlight it. And I will tell you that I have become much more interested in those discussions. And we are highlighting those discussions. Should the court be expanded? Should there be term limits? Some people have said there should only be 18 years on the Supreme Court. And this is a subject of a lot of discussion by the scholars who are connected with the organization and among the chapters in the country. So we intend to foster that conversation because I think it does need to be reexamined. Uh, when I was younger, I used to think that was a terrible idea. I'm not, I don't feel that way anymore. I think something has to give when you intentionally put extremely rigid ideologues on the court who are like 37 years old with the intention that they're going to be there for 50 years. Something's got to change on that. And so we will we will foster that conversation through the American Constitution Society. I read an interesting piece, someone arguing that Republicans should even like that because you, you want to stop the Supreme Court from, like, poisoning the overall party politics because so much well, is dependent on it. So Conservatives were the first ones who proposed it. And liberals used to think it was a bad idea because they liked the Warren Court. But now we see the reverse. We see these young Supreme Court justices on there who, you know, they're going to be uh, on there 30 years from now and people that are 30 years old now are 60. And that doesn't seem right. Well, before I let you go, and, and I do want to acknowledge you famously voted against the Patriot Act and the sign of the times. I wonder if people need to kind of revisit what was even in there and things have changed so radically that, you know, <laughs> the reform of what, what what was going on there. I'm sure you just look back and just see how things have changed. So it's it's fascinating times to kind of see how we compare to even from 15 years ago or so. It is. And in fact, uh, I've been interviewed about what's going on in Portland and the Department of Homeland Security. And the point I've been trying to make is, you know, there were a number of bad decisions made after 9-11, the Patriot Act, creating the Department of Homeland Security without doing it right. Of course, the war in Iraq. And essentially what I'm trying to point out is sometimes those mistakes aren't as serious during that crisis as when the powers that are given are abused later on in another crisis. Right. And that's where we are now. The president of the United States, who is, you know, intentionally abusing Department of Homeland Security authority when the military won't even do this stuff for him anymore. And that's because mistakes were made by not doing it right after 9-11. Crazy times. All right. So last question, we're going to pivot back. I'd ask this of all my guests. If you could recommend anyone to come on the podcast, who would it be? I would put Brian O'Donnell, who is the head of our campaign for nature. Okay. Brian is 
the guy that probably knows more about our natural lands in the western part of the United States and our national monuments than anybody. He's devoted his career to this and is really a fascinating guy to talk to who has worked both domestically and now internationally on this issue. And he could give you a lot more texture on some of the uh, environmental issues involved here. All right. Great suggestion. Well, Senator Feingold, this has been a true honor to interview you. And thanks for coming on and sharing your message. I loved it. Have me on again. (laughs) Anytime. Open invitation. Okay, adapters, that is a wrap. Thanks to Senator Feingold for coming on the podcast. I'm glad to see he's working to protect biodiversity along with his legal work. Please check out the links to the campaign for nature in my show notes. And definitely check out the American Constitution Society. They are doing critical work in voter access, and I'm glad to see the senator leading this charge. Okay, don't forget to check out the podcast in the classroom initiative we're doing. I have heard from many professors using America Adapts in their classrooms. Consider using it more formally with some discussion guides that have been developed for a bunch of my episodes. Thanks to Dr. Kate Bishop for creating those out of University of Waterloo. And just I'd like to note, since we have this huge transition to online learning due to COVID-19, consider using podcasts with your students. Or students listening to this, ask your teachers to use podcasts. You can find those discussion guides on my website at americadapts.org. Okay, so if you're interested in highlighting your adaptation work in a podcast via America Adapts, then think about using a podcast. I've worked with many partners before, MIT, World Wildlife Fund, Harvard, the trustees that I'd mentioned earlier. Maybe you want to tell your story via a podcast. Reach out. Let's partner. I can do these remotely. Also, I do presentations to classes and keynote presentations at conferences. And when we start having those again, hopefully we'll, we'll pick those up. But feel free to contact me if you're interested in having me speak at your event and certainly remotely. So most of you have heard me talk about the work I'm doing with Simpatico Studios. Folks, that is full steam ahead. I'm hosting live talk shows on the Climate Adaptation Channel. Now think about that, a whole streaming channel focusing on climate adaptation. Who would have thought? Right now we're recording pilots and I'm interviewing climate adaptation experts and clean energy entrepreneurs and academics from around the world. If you're a professional in this space, maybe we can have a conversation about the important work that you're doing. It's actually a relatively simple process to participate. Videos from all the episodes are professionally produced and you can use them on your own website or social channels like YouTube. If you're looking for opportunities for remote working, Simpatico is definitely something you should look into. We're starting to get into the space of hosting panels and even parts of conferences. And so maybe you're looking for a more polished resource for you to do these online communities. If you're a student, come check it out. You'll get exposure to what's happening in this professional adaptation and climate space. And we're just encouraging you to come check things out. Come watch a live show and join the community room. The browser is behind a firewall. So reach out to me or go to simpatico.com. And that's with a C, C C-I-M-P-A-T-I-C-O. And put your information in. You'll get directions on how to get into Simpatico. And yes, it's free. We want you just to come check things out. All right, some final housekeeping. Don't forget to join the Facebook page in the Facebook community group. The group is private, but search for America Adapts and ask to join, and I'll preview you right away. And on that note, I love hearing from you. I mean it. Just email me how you found it. You have questions about episodes. You have recommendations for guests. I love hearing from you, and especially I love hearing what you're doing. If you're in the climate space, I'd love to hear all the diversity of jobs that you're doing. Or even if you're outside the climate space, I'd love that you get value out of the podcast. So reach out to me, americadapts at gmail.com. Don't forget to check out that website, americadapts.org. Okay, adapters, keep up the great work. I'll see you next time.